KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you rate and review this podcast? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Please give us feedback. I read every single one of them, and I really appreciate you. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Now let's get to it. It's Black History Month, so this week we talk diversity and inclusion. People of color are in commercials, but how about the C-suite? If your firm is almost all white, something is going on pipeline is there, but some organizations are fishing in the wrong pool. There are a lot of chief equity officers and the chief diversity officers, but the results are just really not there. Look at efforts to make change. Then he's an investigator that discovered a link between Dr. Martin Luther King and South Jersey. They sat down, they performed their first sit-in. The man working to save the MLK house in Camden takes on bureaucracy. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. It's Black History Month, and the focus is diversity and inclusion. Over the past couple of years, there's been an uptick in representation of women, people of color, and LGBT folks in advertising and on network television. But if you look in leadership, in management, entrepreneurship, and in the C-suite, people of color and women still lag behind. So is this outward lean towards diversity a fad, or is it the future? With me in the studio to discuss this Flashpoint is Professor Charles Gallagher. He's an expert on ethnicity, who is chair of the Departments of Sociology and Criminal Justice at LaSalle University. We also have Suleiman Rahman. He's CEO of Diverse Force, which helps companies build diverse teams. We have Jennifer Rodriguez, president and CEO of the Greater Philadelphia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And finally, on the phone, we have Rutgers Law Professor Stacey Hawkins, who is an expert in diversity law. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. According to the Census Bureau, America's racial and ethnic diversity is on the rise, but that doesn't always translate into corporate leadership. And Suleiman, I want to start with you. Why? Well, that's a big question. Yeah. Uh, a lot of dimensions and reasons. If you just really track the history, it's been 150 plus years since the Emancipation Proclamation, but there's been a lot that's happened in between that time as well. I was born in 1976. Martin Luther King was assassinated just eight years earlier. Think about where we are today is a result of civil rights movement that led to opportunities in corporate America, that led to opportunities in education, and there's still bias. There's still attacks, if you will, for those people of color who are in positions. Uh, you, you see how leadership tapers off as you get higher into organizations. Mm-hmm. One is obviously there's an opportunity to to build more robust pipelines, but it's not the absence of pipelines. You still see that there's professionals of color who are two times more likely not to get a job in their profession. Higher unemployment rates disproportionately, you're more likely to get a job as a person with a criminal record if you're not African-American. So many different things that corporations need to look at, check their biases, and make sure they have systems and processes in place to tap into new markets, as well as making sure they're providing an inclusive environment. And we'll come back and dig into those details in just a moment. And Jennifer, studies show that, honestly, not everybody even thinks diversity is very important, even though we're supposed to be a diverse country. Well, guess what? We are a diverse country, like it or not, and the demographics will continue to do so. I mean, like the city of Philadelphia, for example, has 15% Hispanic population. How many Hispanics are there in CEO positions around the city? Thank God for their bitches coming here, right? And so... Um, But look at city government. We only have one council person of Hispanic origin. We need to do a lot of work in terms of getting our leadership to be reflective of the population it serves. And I think a big problem, and Charles, I want to jump to you on this. If some folks are getting seats at the table that they traditionally did not have, that means that other people will lose a seat at the table. Isn't that part of why this diversity thing hasn't happened? Well, there's some pushback, but you have to look in Philadelphia is that all positions of power in Philadelphia or state, city, or federal government have been monopolized by whites and particularly white men. So you're talking about some people are getting spots at the table, but they're, it's a small number of spots. And I think back to, you know, two of the things that, that Jennifer said and Solomon said that are very important. It's like 
we are becoming more diverse. But as you go up the corporate elevator, once you get to the top, it's a sea of white faces. And, and in sociology, we say there's this, this theory, it's called homophilia, and it's really, you know, the expression birds of a feather. The reality is that people tend to hire people like themselves. So mm. People come out of segregated social networks. They're racially segregated. They're ethnically segregated. And you wind up hiring someone that looks like you or has had similar experiences. Maybe they went to the same college. They were the same fraternity. Maybe they're from the same church. And what happens is that, you know, maybe well-intended people, maybe the person, I'm not suggesting they're necessarily racist, but they wind up bonding with that young man who's white and they get the job. And that's how these things perpetuate themselves. When you have a, a lot of young uh, people of color, they're coming that are unbelievably well-trained, just not getting their foot in the door. I want to ask Stacy here. She's our diversity lawyer on the panel. And when I think of diversity law, we all kind of talk about affirmative action, right? But we've yes. kind of moved past that, haven't we? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you made that distinction, Jerry, because one of the main objectives of my work is to try to convince people to disentangle diversity from affirmative action. Um, the two are simply not the same. And the largest difference is that affirmative action really was a historical um, practice that was designed to remedy centuries of exclusion and discrimination, racialized and gender-based in this country. And it existed for a particular moment, and quite frankly, it's been in decline for the last several decades. It was a remedial program, and it was designed to make up for the history and legacy of discrimination in this country. Diversity is very different. Um, when we talk about diversity today, oftentimes we're talking about a kind of utilitarian-based um, effort that is really designed to achieve certain prospective um, aspirational goals. It's not about uh, trying to remedy past discrimination. It's often about, particularly in the corporate context, things like trying to service diverse clients and customers, expand into new diverse markets, um, reflect demographics of customer or stakeholder groups, and probably most important is to really uh, attain the benefits of diversity in the form of innovation and improved performance, which the data suggests that the more heterogeneous yeah. your um, work groups are, um, the more improved performance and innovation you're going to get from them. And so diversity really is about um, trying to have uh, broadly uh, inclusive workplaces, but not because we're trying to make up for past discrimination. It's because there are lots. Yeah, of it's not remedial. Benefit. Yeah, That's it's remedial. It's is more innovative, and so and so. You've heard what Stacy just said. Mm -hmm. I mean, Suleiman, there's a business case uh, for that. But can we go back to some of the the, the challenges here? Because there's always tons of excuses, and you mentioned pipeline, um, and and people said, oh, you know, we don't have people. You know, I remember the binders of Latinos. Oh remember that? Y'all bring that up? Even. Binders of yeah. women. There's reasons. And so let's talk about the, the some of the reasons why people say, you know, we can't do that and, and, and what the remedy is. Yeah, I mean, to Stacey's point, there's huge value proposition to diversity, outperforming, out-innovating. Um, but we can't dismiss the history that's led to it. Not the fact that we're trying to make up for the history, but understand. And it's Black History Month, so go yeah, right ahead. Yeah, yeah. Get, understanding why we're in the place that we're in. There's persistence of thought that's still in systems that's still in place that are preventing opportunities uh, for some. But there's to the point of organizations say they can't find the talent. We work and help organizations find talent through the work that we're doing. It's not because we've created a new pipeline. The pipeline is there, uh, but some organizations are fishing in the wrong pool. They're not in the communities, in the networks where the talent is. So it's important to understand how to make sure you're tapping into networks that where the talent, they can find the talent. And that kind of goes back to what Charles was saying, that people kind of go within their own networks. And I want to talk to you, Jennifer, because people, when they think diversity, people typically say think black and white. But what who we're talking about is a lot broader. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about Latinos. We're talking about Asian Americans. In Philadelphia, particularly, we're talking about immigrants, refugees. There's the disabled community, LGBTQ, right? But this whole thing about the binders. And I remember being in a, mm. in a, in a meeting with some very, very important and intelligent people when I heard, you know, talking about union participation and invariably you hear, but they're not people, but we cannot find the students that are qualified. And I said, you're telling me that in the city of Philadelphia, you cannot find a hundred high school students of color that can subtract, that can add and do simple division. Impossible. You're like, I call BS. Yeah, exactly. it's outrageous. Both of you addressed that pipeline issue. That's just not true. And Charles mentioned that you have to look outside of those communities. And so, Charles, but given the history of this country, we've discriminated against some people. 
We've given other people privileges. Are there policies that need to be implemented before diversity can actually work? We're no longer doing remedies like affirmative action. Instead, we're talking about innovation, but we still need policies that support that. Yeah, the policy question is hard. I mean, so imagine there are possibly some kind of job with the city and we can't find Latino kids. We can't find black kids for Mm. these things. You know, what happens often is that a lot of the white kids basically are coming from environments where their resume is different. Their parents were able to basically find them internships elsewhere or they have these kinds of things that make them look better on paper. So there's always going to be this kind of situation where all things being equal, some resumes are going to look better than others. And that's why you need to look in different ways. You need to look cast net wider. You go through networks that you don't usually tap because the talent pool is out there. And that's mm. the thing is you really have to look in a different way. Because otherwise, you'll just keep repeating the people that get hired or the kids get tapped for internships. Stacey, can we talk about who we're talking about when we say diversity? And there have been programs or where they said, you know, we're going to have diverse hires. And in those cases, they included white gay men in what they called minorities. Who are the people that we're trying to pull in here? Because everybody has something they could check on a box. There are as many definitions of diversity as there are organizations who have diversity commitments. I think it's very um, different for every institution, how broadly or how narrowly they define diversity. But I think one of the things that makes clear the kind of distinction between um, modern diversity efforts and past affirmative action is the scope of diversity, right? It clearly includes Um, populations that have nothing to do with the kind of remedial premise of affirmative action. Um, And so we do see um, diversity um, efforts increasingly expanding um, to newer, not only racial and ethnic populations, but uh, obviously um, sexual minorities, increasingly religious minorities. So there are all kinds of ways that companies and institutions can really manifest their uh, commitment to diversity. But we do see a movement toward broadening the scope of diversity, although people have to be mindful that they don't want to dilute. Because there are still these systems of structural discrimination that exist that make it more difficult for some populations than others. So so diversity is still equality-based, but I think it's aspirational. It's not remedial. I mean, one way I tend to think about it, all things being equal argument, what I do with my students sometimes, does your firm look like the demographics of the city? So we're 15% Latino, we're 8% Asian, we have 4% that self-identify as being uh, LBGT. Does your firm look like that? Because certainly there's the talent pools out there. And if your firm is 75% of any one thing, something's going on. Your, your firm is not diverse. And I think for all the reasons that Solomon said, we know that there's really a value proposition to having diverse, a diverse workforce. So like that's just a simple way. If Philadelphia is – it's basically 44% white, 40% black. You know, We have all these different other populations, Latino. If your firm is almost all white, something is going on. Yeah. And I think that needs to be on the face of it. Now, does it, does it mean their folks are racist? Not necessarily, but it means that how they think about hiring has got to change. So diversity is sexy right now. I was looking at television the other day and I was like, wow, they got interracial couples. They have uh, mom, mom, dad, dad. They have kids of all races, young people. Opie, they got all it's just very diverse. But a lot of it is political. It's tied to politics, too. So how political, Suleiman, is diversity? Well, I think there's a number of pressure points. For diversity, it's becoming there's more external pressure points from politicians. There's uh, in the nonprofit sector, philanthropic leaders are starting to ask for more diversity on boards. The marketplace, there's board activism in the corporate space. So there's a lot of different pressure points around normalizing this idea that organizations should be more diverse and inclusive. But you're finding more leaders who recognize the demographic shifts and that it's going from being a nice thing to do to being a business imperative. However, diversity many times dies in the middle. It dies in at these hiring managers that just end of the day, it's five few candidates and they want to hire someone who they want to grab a beer with. I want that culture fit versus a culture ad. So there's a lot of different pressure points on why we're seeing it happening. But are we, one, helping people to understand the value proposition and two, giving practical ways for them to do it? And three, making sure that we help them to check their biases. You know, sometimes it is unconscious bias that leads mm. the way. And are we, you know, there's a lot of, there's studies around how uh, with lawyers where um, they had someone write the same email. There were seven errors in the email. And a white person, they, they didn't see the errors. They just they were blind spots to see the errors. But for a person of color, they were more critical, saw the errors, looked at that person a lot differently. So now that it has collateral effects to it. Does that person get mentorship? How does their performance review? So there's a tax associated with the stigma that's put on different communities and lack of power, lack of social networks, 
all those things add to yeah. the uh, challenges. And Jennifer, I want you to jump in here because I do feel like uh, people of color, minorities, women get trained differently even to deal with that, that tax that, that Suleiman just mentioned. I'll say that in some ways, if you're a female of color, mm. sometimes it can be easier, in my opinion, or in my in my experience. I will say that that in terms of where does it stop, I think it stops like in middle management. You can see diversity, you know, slowly creeping up from like the, the more basic, lower level skill. You reach management and in a lot of corporations, you'll actually see, oh my God, there's a lot of diversity and there it stops. Like when you get to senior management, it's lily white, right? There's a lot of work that needs to be there and there are a lot of people in corporate like, you know, the, the chief equity officers and the chief, you know, diversity officers. But the results are just really not there the way they should be, because this is now a billion dollar industry. And yeah. it all looks nice in the advertising. But when it, you get to the C-suite, not nice. That's right. not and, nice. And, that's, and that's what I'm saying. We have this pretty, smoke you know, <laughs> smoke screen, the commercials. We see we see the brochures. All the, can the, I, can the, I miss, yeah, can jump I, in can there. Jump in there, Stacey. Jump in. This is such an important point. And I think that it's, it's important to acknowledge that, that organizations walk a very fine line. So if you think about it, on the one hand, what we're asking them to do is to signal their commitment to diversity to diverse constituencies, whether it's internal constituencies or external constituencies. Demonstrate that you're committed to diversity. And so they do that by trying to um, create brochures and advertising and commercials that include diverse images. And then we attack them because those images are not reflective of the actual lived experience of the people in the organization. And so I think that as they're trying to move towards diversity, they're signaling their commitment in ways that may not necessarily be reflective of their reality at the moment, but it's aspirational. And I think that we we can't be too hard on organizations for responding to our demands that they signal their commitment and express um, a willingness to be inclusive and try to attract more um, uh, diverse talent. I, I would disagree and, with that uh, for a fine. second. But, I mean, I, but I think there's a nefarious aspect to this ideologically. Is that so? You have commercials where you have in a room people having Domino's pizza or drinking Coca Cola, and there's a white person, there's a black person, maybe two men are holding hands, and what they're doing? It's smart. It's we live in a, a colorblind, post-race, post-gendered nirvana, and what they're doing? They're tapping demographics to sell their products, which is smart marketing. But they're also saying that these people are now part of the corporate structure, and they're not. And, that, and to your point, Jennifer, when you start vice president above, look at Fortune 500. It is a sea of white male faces. So, uh, you know, of course, I think you should give credit. These are certainly better commercials than Aunt Jemima and the commercials we saw in the past are Uncle Ben's. But they, they do a disservice by saying corporate America has changed its act. Look at the way we sell pizza or soda. And I have a quick follow-up here, and I appreciate that perspective, Stacey, because I do want to say, in America, the culture is we should not consider race. We should not consider ethnicity. We should not consider someone's sexual orientation when we hire. And at the same time, we talk about diversity. So, Stacey, I'd like for you to comment on that. Well, there are two schools of thought in, in, in that regard. I mean, I think that there is very much a colorblind school of thought that we ought to be colorblind in all things at all times. Um, and there is very much a counter school of thought that says that color consciousness and, you know, other types of social identity consciousness is important because otherwise you're denying the reality of all of our um, lived experiences. Um, and, and I very much fall in the color conscious camp. So, so I don't think that although, and again, there are ways in which people argue both in terms of the law, that the law requires us to be colorblind, and, and that's not entirely true. And so I, I do think that there is a way in which we can affirm the value of difference without um, negatively impacting people on the basis of their race, ethnicity, or uh, gender, or other dimensions of social identity. And I think that's really the point. Uh, we, we don't want to disadvantage people, but we want to understand that those differences are meaningful, those differences are important, those differences contribute to the value that people can bring to organizations, that in fact diversity is the strength of our country, and that's meaningful. Um, and so yeah. I, I don't think it's valuable to kind of gloss over or to try to minimize the relevance of race and to try to push this colorblind society. And what about the fact that, you know, and, and thank you for that, Stacey, and what about the fact that people say diversity takes time? You can't just, you know, and, and uh, Jennifer, she's balled up the fist right here. Look, <laughs> look when a corporation <laughs> wants to conquer the world and they, SpaceX needs to go to the moon, they'll do that and they'll do that in five years, right? But the idea that we should not hold and you shouldn't be too hard on corporations, you know how long they've been tracking diversity in boards and that has not moved 
for decades, right? And we should give, who should we give a break here now, right? So I really am not for holding people and being so easy on them and the idea that's aspirational. If you really want to get it done, you will get it done. And I got we got a couple more minutes here, but I want to talk about the fact that a lot of companies do hire people of color. They hire women, but they can't retain them because mm-hmm. they have everyone. And and or they yeah. And I mean, I was at law firms. I remember you know there being huge classes of people of color, and within two years, folks were like jumping out the window trying to get away. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of like make sure that it's not just we're bringing people in, but they're able to keep them and grow those folks to the point we made is. There's value and diversity with the changing demographics. So they have to understand the value proposition to that. Two, it does take work. Can't just pipeline people into a swamp, if you will, or pipeline people into an environment that's not conducive. So uh, inclusion, diversity is what we see. Inclusion is what people feel. And you got to create an inclusive environment. You have to, you can't just put people together. You have to lead diversity as well. So it takes a, this future of work is going to require a different type of leadership and more inclusive leadership. Um, so understanding how to create inclusive environments, I would say a great recruiting plan is a good retention plan. Are you retaining the talent? Are you leveraging employee resource groups? Are you leveraging internal networks and employees to become talent magnets, to become, uh, you know, more create a more sticky environment for those that come into that environment? So it's work that needs to be done on the retention side just as much on the talent acquisition side as well. And retention is, is linked yeah. to mentorship, that you bring people in, you bring in junior faculty, and you don't bring it, oh, I'm bringing in this very, very smart African-American female, and you just let her out. And also that she's going to get asked to be on every committee because they want to show that the university is diverse. So this person gets asked, someone that's very junior, to be on dozens of committees where it doesn't happen me. for other folks. Right? <laughs> that was me, And this yeah. can happen at accounting firms, law firms. And I don't think there's ill intent. They, people say, well, we want diverse voices. Could you be on this? And, and you're new. You're not going to say no. And I've been at different universities, and I've watched real good talent come in and just be overworked. And they're overworked because for the right reasons. You're the go-to person of color. That's right. And I said, I've said, say no. And if you can say no and say, I said to say no because I'm a senior faculty member. And the idea is that you need a mentor and you need someone that you check in with me once a month. Let's have coffee. A lot of times people come in and they said, you know what? I don't connect with this person. The senior folks, they're often whites. I'm just not connected. And so this person is left out to dry. And that is not good for your career, your occupation. You feel but, isolated. And a follow-up to that is, and this is to the group uh, before we wrap this up, is, is is how do you get people who are the white folks, basically, who are in charge, who are there to open up and, 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 and find folks? Because you got to take, you got to get, I know I've learned the best lessons in both journalism and law when somebody saw fit to literally put their hand on my chair, bring me, sat beside me and went line by line through my work. That's how you grow. Let me tag along to all the cases. Let me come to all the stories. That's how you get better, right? How do you get folk who are in there to give people who don't look like them a shot and do that for them the same way it was done for them? Like pass on the knowledge. It takes a conscious effort, you know, to fight unconscious bias or efforts. You have to be conscious about it. You got to think through the fact that we sometimes create systems in which you're able to match people up with with mentors, not just mentors, but sponsors too. who's going to advocate for you and understand many times you're not sponsoring people because you just don't you don't feel that connection or you don't see the same type of potential in a person who's different from you. So how do you start to think Because that's that bias in your mind. Those thinking. Bias. Well, it is, think of diversity as a muscle that you need to exercise daily, right? It's mm-hmm. not one and done. It's not that I made the act or the hire and you're done. It is I hired and I need to now continue exercising that muscle, continue really being be tracking. And, and authenticity is always uh, is always interesting. To me, every time I, I walk into a group that they, and I people want to be more diverse and diverse strategies and what. Um, when was the last time you had a person of color in your house or went out for dinner or had coffee with yeah. somebody that doesn't look and like And a you? lot of people, the most diverse it's, group they have know, is at work. Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think if you do not exercise that, if you are not actively seeking the relationships with people that do not look like you ongoingly, then you are not going to get to the place you want to be. Yeah. And I think that there's certainly some... You know, I, I feel it's kind of like a middle-aged white guy now that I'm in a situation where, and you talked about value proposition, I try to educate my colleagues saying that there is an inherent value by having an African-American professor in the front of the classroom. Our classes are diverse, and you want role models. And I think it's that the idea is that we know when students can connect with their, their faculty, they do better. 
Because yeah. they look at this and they say, that could be me. And I think there's some real value in that. And I think it's bringing people along saying, you know what? Everyone is better served by having a search that's a little different than we've done before. Yeah. And I got to ask Stacey one of my last questions before we wrap this up. Stacey, I've, I've been seeing, though, some reverse discrimination lawsuits popping up. As you shift, folks feel like that should be my job. Are you seeing more of that? Absolutely. There, that, that's been trending up for a couple of decades now. Although I will say that the kind of risk of legal liability associated with diversity efforts is not nearly as high as many people think it is. And there are lots of diversity efforts, um, certainly some of the most common diversity efforts, simply having a diversity statement or diversity commitment, things like affinity groups, things like targeted uh, recruitment that we've been talking about. All of those efforts carry very low risk of legal liability. So it is, I think, true that lots of cases have been filed, but not nearly as many of those cases have been successful as people might think. People just get mad, but it doesn't mean you have a legal basis. So because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. The countdown is on. Minority groups will soon be the majority in America. So give me a vision, y'all, of what 21st century diversity would look like from pipeline to the top of the food chain. And then, yes or no, do you think it could actually happen in the 21st century? So, well, there's a hundred years in a century, so absolutely, you got it 80 can more. happen. You have <laughs> eighty more, and I would say the one, the first thing I would say, start by having coffee or people that do not like you, invite them to your home and really get to know them. And I think it'll change your life and it'll change everybody around you. Wonderful, Suleiman. Jennifer's point, you know, a friend of mine says, how diverse is your is your calendar? Being intentional about diversifying your calendar. And again, sharing the, you know, understanding the power structures and making sure we have people, diverse power structures in these cities, in these companies, so we have different results. Wonderful. Charles. Yeah, I mean, I'll make, I'll be contrarian for a second that we hear in 2050 that, that minorities will be the largest group. And I'd say it's simply not true in terms of demography because the majority of Latinos in the United States self-identify as white. So I think I think that that statement is a way to scare people. It always bothers me. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, they're taking over. You know, all the things my colleagues are saying, I completely agree with. But I think there's also this fear is like, well, why is diversity bad? Why are we even framing it this way as something that I have to worry about? There's going to be a takeover. It's like, well, we, are, we have been diversifying as a country since, you know, 400 years. So, you know, my thought is that, yeah, do exactly what my colleagues said. Eat, drink, break <laughs> bread with people across the color line. But, but don't be paranoid about what change is about. Good yeah. Point. Final word, Stacey. People always talk about the inevitability, right? The d- demographic inevitability. Um, and I just said the things that I heard most of my time during diversity practice is that people want diversity without you. Um, and so we have to be committed to culture change because that's the only way the diversity works. Well, I want to say thank you so much to Stacey Hawkins, to Charles Digger, to Jennifer Rodriguez, and to Suleiman Rock for coming on Flashpoint and talk about this issue in the news. That's it. Next up, the MLK house in Camden is on the brink of dilapidation. People want to have a good ending to this. The man with the plan to save it talks about its significance and its roadblocks to preservation. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint fam. If you like what you hear, please stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes. Some of our most popular episodes include the exclusive featuring David L. Cohen from Comcast. He's talking about the $20 billion lawsuit against the company brought by entertainment mogul Byron Allen. In addition, we got a lot of downloads on our hair and identity show. It was inspired by the one and only Ayanna Presley who came out as bald. And if you're wondering what is human trafficking, take a listen to this Flashpoint Extra exclusive where Philadelphia mom tells the story of her daughter getting trafficked at 15 years old. She's sharing it, hoping to save others. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. Tell us what you think. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker is the MLK House in Camden. Located on Walnut Street, it's the place where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stayed while he was a student at the Crozier Theological Seminary in Chester. At the time, he was 21 and organized his first act of civil disobedience in the nearby town of Mapleshade. And there's an effort to save this home, but it has stalled. Activist and investigator Patrick Duff is the force behind the push to designate the home as historic landmark. 
Patrick, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. There's an effort to save this MLK house. It's been going on for a couple of years. For folks who don't know, tell us a little bit about the history of this house. It's rests in what they call the Bergen Square section of the city of Camden. Between 1948 and 1951, Dr. King and his best friend, Walter McCall, who's uncle in the house, they stayed there periodically uh, while they went to what's called Crozier Theological Seminary School. So they'd stay there on the weekends. They'd stay there when school was closed, like um, when the specific event that people talk about Dr. King's first civil rights event happened. It happened during the summer of 1950 when Crozier was closed. So they couldn't be staying on campus. They had to be staying somewhere else. And where they were staying was actually uh, 753 Walnut Street in Camden, New Jersey. Yeah, and tell us this infamous story about the gunfiring that happened. Yeah, so Dr. King actually um, was at the house uh, at 753 Walnut Street and was asked uh, or told by the owner of the house to not go to Maple Shade uh, because he wouldn't be served. Uh, King was talking about, I believe, the 1945 discrimination law that New Jersey passed and told um, the owner that he should be able to go down there. The son of the owner of the house then had a conversation. King said to the son that maybe we need to start going down there so we can start going anywhere that we want. That was in a 1996 article quoting Jethro Hunt. Um, So um, when King arrived at this this restaurant, he knew he wasn't going to be served, but he didn't know he was going to run into an old World War I vet uh, named uh, Ernest Nichols, who was was a German soldier during the Mm. war. Uh, When they walked into the restaurant, the restaurant owner uh, basically asked him to leave. They refused. They sat down. They performed their first sit-in. King's first sit-in happened in Maple Shade, New Jersey. He left, went back, and put a gun to their faces, and they still refused to leave. At that point, he walked out, took one step out the door, fired the gun off. Some people say once or twice. At that point, pointed the gun back at the, the party, which was King and two young ladies. They felt threatened. They got up. They left. They went to the police station. Police refused to arrest the uh, restaurant owner. So they called the president of the NAACP. At midnight, had him come down to help Dr. King and Walter McCall and Pearl Smith and Doris Wilson press charges against the restaurant owner, a guy named Ernest Nichols, and then helped King file a lawsuit against the restaurant owner. So it was, it was the first time King had ever been in a sit-in, first time he had ever been engaged in a civil rights battle, and first time that he had ever filed any type of a court document and also the first time he was ever in a newspaper for civil rights incident. This is a critical piece of history that I think a lot of people haven't heard. Has it been difficult to preserve this house and this piece of history? I feel like I'm in a twilight zone because I just filed a legal case. Um, imagine that you filed a historic application to try to save a home that, that, that has to do with Martin Luther King. Um, you have a police complaint signed by Dr. King. You have living witnesses. You have newspaper articles uh, that place him all this house. And you get nothing but pushback from the Department of Environmental Protection. Um, uh, when I first filed the application, they told me it would take roughly 60 to 90 days to, to rule on the application. It's been more than five years. Wow. So, I mean, and, and, and this is a preliminary application process. It should be either a yes or a no, really. Um, and since I filed the application, I've found other living witnesses that put him at the house I found other articles that put him there. I found Dr. King's own words about the incident of Maple Shade where he said it was a very painful experience because we decided to sit in. And still, the Department of Environmental Protection, along with these um, professors that were hired from Stockton University, are finding that the first civil rights incident of Dr. Martin Luther King was not significant. Yeah. So, so, so I filed Oprah requests to see what they were saying in their emails. And when I got back the first original round of Oprah requests, it was more redacted than the Mueller report. The house is currently still standing, yes. but it's in great disrepair. Yeah, it's in, it's, it's in really bad shape. I mean, you're talking about a hole in the roof that, that has created a hole in the second, uh, the second story floor that mm. goes right through to the first story. So, you, you know, you have holes in the floor, a hole in the roof. Um, it needs help. The same family that owned the home when Dr. King lived in 
stayed in that home, Correct. they still own it. Correct, and 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 it's it's hundred percent up on taxes. She's always taking care of her her burden of uh, in the city and still lives in the city. In fact, and, and so where does it stand now? The application stands the same as it stood five years ago. It's it's in limbo. They, they've refused to rule on it. The reporters will ask them for comment. They refuse to comment. Yeah. You know? So no one will tell you why. So why do you think there's so much pushback against placing King? In uh, in this area at this time, I think they had a preconceived notion when this project started, and um, you know I'm not your normal historian. I'm kind of an investigative researcher out of nowhere that that, that came up with facts that all these people in this his, historical world missed. Um, now I've offered it up to them, and they've made it more difficult than you can believe. I mean, I think it has to do also with changing the narrative of who Dr. King is. You know, they want Dr. King to be this person that has volunteered his time freely, not a guy that walks into a restaurant and demands service and changes the law in New Jersey. You know, the first time that, that Dr. King ever had the chance to challenge discrimination with the law on his side was at this restaurant in New Jersey. Thirteen years later, he goes on to help pass a civil rights law federally. There is a, a big correlation between the two. Yeah. That's why that correlation has to be recognized, that house is that part of the cor- correlation. The restaurant no longer exists. Yeah been torn down so this is the only piece that would tie him to new jersey and so what what can the public do what can people do to support this if they believe they say hey you know what this needs to be remembered we need to make this a historical place there's been a letter from the mayor from the congressman and also a joint resolution passed by the house and the legislature of new jersey stating to put this property on the uh the the new jersey historic registry there's also been a letter from the NAACP from the, which states this letter comes from the 41 chapters of the NAACP, which strongly urges them to basically trash the study by Stockton University and place the home on the historic registry. But the Department of Environmental Protection still refuses to listen to the largest African-American group in New Jersey um, when they send a letter urging them what to do. And so what do you want folks to know about this house? In Camden. If you can give that area of Camden, which is one of the most blighted areas of Camden, a beacon of light, some of hope for kids to know that Dr. King formulated his first civil rights incident out of that property, that's huge for those children. The mighty writers want to take over that house to teach kids how to read and write out of that house. That was the intention that we had to try to get the last round of funding. And the city just disregards us and refuses to speak to us. People could donate money, I guess, to fix the house because it seems like it's not going to last if this continues. Please, I'd I'd love for the house to be saved. There was $229,000 granted to the home that was reallocated to the fire department. Well, the home's still sitting there. I mean, this house has had a lot of significant people. I mean, Congressman John Lewis has visited the house. I mean, we had people. There has been national attention on this home. There, there, it was in the New York Times. You know, I mean, on, on King Holiday in 2017, I mean, you'd figure that people want to have a, a good ending to the story. I want a good ending to the story. And so um, go check the home out. Uh, seven... 753 Walnut Street. Now, listen, just go on Google. Go on Google, type in 753 Walnut Street in Camden. It says MLK Birthplace of Civil Rights Movement Museum. Somebody. I don't know who did that, but yeah. thank you. And so we look forward to, to seeing this wrap up. And um, we all hope for a positive outcome and that the MLK house in Camden is saved. Thank you so much, Patrick. Next up, the critically acclaimed Black History Untold series is back. It's really to show the power of knowing your history and who you are. Creator and storyteller Sophia Ballin talks revolution. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast and feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. It's Black History Month. And across the city, people are celebrating and reflecting. And to kick it off, the Museum of the American Revolution will host a very special history after hours with the premiere of the film Revolution. It's the latest installment of the Black History Untold series, which explores the Black experience through history. Award-winning journalist Sophia Ballin. She's the creator, writer, and curator for the series. And she's here in the studios 
Welcome to Flashpoint, hey, Sophia. Thank you for having me. So I'm so proud of you. Thank you. You are amazing. Thank you. And so for people who have not heard of Black History Untold, tell us what it is. Ooh, so Black History Untold is an identity series that explores the importance of a comprehensive Black history education through the revelatory stories of Black people. And I know that's a mouthful, but yeah, essentially I interview Black people and I have them share untold Black stories that changed who they are, that impacted how they viewed themselves and how they navigate throughout this world. And it's really to show the power of knowing your history and who you are um, and really challenging the education system and saying we're not really teaching our kids you know, yes. all about themselves. And these are the detriments of it. But these are also the incredible like positives that come with knowing that history. And so you go and you talk to people. Yeah. And you ask them what? From a general scope, it's, you know, tell me an untold black history story that changed you and impacted you, right? And you found what? What did you find from these folks? Yeah, so I started in 2016, and I asked people that general question to share a story they learned outside of school that impacted them. The first year, I had people like Black Thought saying, I read work by Sheikh Anti Jope and realized I didn't come from a dark continent. I came from a continent that innovated math and science, and I put that in my lyricism, and that's why people consider me one of the top five MCs. Jesse Williams, who's an actor and activist, saying, you know, I moved to to Philadelphia for school because a lot of people don't know he went to Temple University he taught within the Philadelphia school district and he learned about the move bombing and he said learning about that changed the way I looked at policing and really woke me up as an activist Jasmine Sullivan talking about Negro spirituals and saying that realizing the power of messaging and music so that now she thinks double time when she writes a, a song because she wants to think about the messaging that she wants to translate just showing the impact that a mm. lot of this history can have on a person's personhood first year and the second year I started doing themes the second year the theme was joy and I don't know if anyone's familiar with Matt Hopkins in Philly. He's like 70 plus years old. He dances to hip hop music outside. Like, I've seen him like right yes. on Spring Garden Street. Yes, yes, yes. So when you look at him, he has, he's 70 plus, but his eyes are so filled with youth, so filled with joy. And I was like, I think he'd be perfect for this. And I said, you know, what was your black joy moment, but told through the lens of history? Yes. Right? And he said, seeing Marian Anderson perform for the first time. And how many people can say they've seen Marian Anderson perform? And he was five years old. And he said, you know, you think it's bad now, right? You think that they show us as only caricatures and stereotypes now. He's like, back then it was even worse. So to see someone present themselves with so much grace um, and so much pride in the face of so much bigotry really inspired me. And he said, she's the reason why I learned German. She's the reason why I, I, I got into music. So we've been doing this every year since 2016. I highlight 30 or more people. It's a lot. We feature someone every single day for the month of February and a little bit beyond because I think it's important to show that black history is more than February. It goes beyond just the month. In the first two years, I did it at the Philadelphia Inquirer and then it won award from NABJ. Yes. <laughs> um, I won an award from PABJ. Journalist of the Year. Yes, Journalist of the Year. Never forget. Um, and then, you know, I decided to go independent. So it's been independent since 2018. First of all, people <clears throat> who don't know about you, you're a Temple grad, right? Mm-hmm. And where did you get your love of writing and storytelling? And then your independent streak to where you just like, you hit the eject button and went on your own. Yeah. Who? My love of writing. That's such a great question. You know, we can start from the root where I could come talk about my grandmother. My parents are from Jamaica. My grandmother born raised Jamaica. When she came to America, she was in her 50s and she was an educator. She taught, you know, in Jamaica and taught in New York public schools in the Bronx. And so she, you know, she was one of the people who taught me how to read really early on along with my parents. She, you know, got me reading really early. Um, and she would sometimes just say, Sophia, like, let's write a story. Like just for fun, like when I would spend time with her over the summer, like let's let's just write a story. I also had a father who would encourage me to ask questions, right? Like if I asked a question, he wouldn't necessarily answer it. He would just ask me more questions. And he encouraged me to ask more questions because then he would always say, when you come to the answer on your own, it actually stays with you as opposed wow, to him just yeah. giving me the answer. And he never baby talked me. He always gave it to me straight. If I needed to him to break something down, he would just tell me to ask more questions. Um, so fast forward to Temple. George Miller was my first journalism George! professor. Yes. And my mentor. And I started writing for a local music magazine called Jump. Yes. Um, that really got me into the Philly scene. Started writing about artists within the scene. It was just a snowball effect. Once I started, interviewed one rapper, I met another one and an R&B singer and a visual artist. So I became that writer in a sense, especially for when it comes to black culture, black arts and culture. 
culture. I still remember your cuffing <laughs> season story, oh girl. My that God. story right there. <laughs> I was like, we did a whole show on cuffing season really? this spring. Yeah, but I always go back to your cuffing really? season. I never heard of it used in that term. Yes. And I was like, she's like on the pulse. And I want that to go also into, you know, being independent because fast forward to me graduating from Temple, right? Yeah. 2014 and going to the Philadelphia Inquirer slash Daily News slash Philly.com. Cuffing season, that was a hard story to kind of pitch because it was like, what is this? Why is this a story? Why is this so important? And constantly having to kind of prove the value of black stories. And I'm like, just because you may not know it, doesn't mean it's not a story, right? Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not no, it's a, a thing. thing. No, it's a it's thing. It's a thing. And, and, you know, that speaks to why diversity and inclusion is important in newsrooms. Um, but it was a bit of a, like, a push. And they were like, okay, we'll trust you. We'll we'll go. But there was a lot of nudging I had to do. But I was glad I did that. I talked to psychologists. And they're like, yeah, cuffing season is a thing. The same way summer love is a thing. Our weather, the weather impacts, you know, how we, you know, relate with each other, how we couple with each other. Um, so that was really, really dope. So going independent, I just knew that I wanted wanted to tell stories in different ways. I love writing, but I've also wanted to step into visual storytelling. I wanted to just be really creative with my work and there wasn't much space to do that in a traditional outlet. And then also with the project, there were certain creative choices I wanted to make that I couldn't make because technically those two first two installments belong to them and not me. And ownership is important. We're talking about owning black stories, black narratives. To me, it was important that the project as well be black owned. And I had to really put <laughs> my money <laughs> and my life where my mouth was because it's very frightening to leave the place that's providing <laughs> like your shelter and your food. But to me, I saw the potential in the project and I said, you know what, you're, you're going to be okay. It's going to be rough at first, but it, you're going to be okay. Yeah, and Steve Harvey always says, like, if you never jump off the cliff, you'll never learn whether or not you can fly. Mm -hmm. And it is rough in the beginning. And I'm so glad that, you know, you got your wings and you're flying out here. And so yeah. tell me about Revolution. Yeah, so after the first year, we started doing themes. Second year was Joy. Third year, when I was independent, was Future. Last year was Black Woman Stories. And then Revolution. I think that theme idea came to me really early on. And I knew it was something I wanted to do. And I wanted to wait to a point where I knew I could do it really well. When we look at our current political climate, when there's a lot of attacks on people who are marginalized, people of color and specifically black people in many ways, I think that it's very easy to feel discouraged. I remember my dad calling me when we found out who our new president was going to be. And at the time, you know, you have a lot of emotions. <laughs> and he said, Sophia, you know, we, we've been through this before. We've been through worse before. And, and, and we've made it through. We're here because we didn't learn from our history before. And so we're here again. So that's one part. Two, you have rappers like Kanye West saying slavery was a choice. And that kind of messaging is extremely damaging to be out there. There was also an incident, a mother, a black mother in Texas, she reported to the textbook publisher. They referred to enslaved Africans as workers, right? As if like they just signed up and said, yeah, you know, I'd like to go over to the South Carolina plantation and how not providing that context about slavery can impact you know black kids who will then become black adults and not understanding when we hear people talk about the wage gap when we hear yeah. people talk about mass incarceration if you don't understand the the atrocity that is enslavement then you don't understand that we were literally held back and oppressed for 400 plus years and weren't able to catch up without that context then you have black kids who become black adults believing that we are somehow intrinsically inferior yeah. and born this way. So that's the mission behind the project as a whole. But mm -hmm. this year with Revolution, I wanted to show no. Even when we were enslaved, we've been fighting. And in fact, we fought off enslavement, right? And we fought off colonization and we fought off imperialism. And we didn't need a white savior. We fought for each other. We fought for ourselves. When you look at the Haitian Revolution, when you look at Queen Nzinga in Angola, when you look at the Black Panthers, like we've constantly resisted and fought on behalf of each other in our community and we can still do it today. Every year I look at it, you know, I say it's a, these are love letters to black people and it's also a blueprint for black people to say we've done it before, we can do it again, these are the steps, this is what worked and this is what didn't work. And so it's like a letter of hope in a way. Yeah. 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 And so you're going to have an event. Uh, yeah. It is coming up. It is February 11th from 5 yes. to 830 at the Museum of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be film vignettes. 
Yes. So it's so interesting hearing people say, you know, documentary, film. Because, you know, like I said, I'm coming from writing and, you know, doing visual storytelling. It's still very new for me. And I'm learning as I go. Like, I'm not in school studying film. I'm literally learning as I go, which is frightening. And this is this project is self-funded. So I'm putting my money, like, in it as I'm learning and making it work. So just hearing it being called a film and a documentary, I'm like, whoo, because it was kind of accidental. You know, every year, like I said, we release these profiles or these interviews for each day the way i planned to do it was we're going to release these vignettes you know one every single day for the month but then when i approached the museum about having an event when i approached the museum they were like okay but we need to weave this together somehow yeah because i was like yeah you're right i can't just sit there and press play and press play and press play and so they did the exhibition <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so it becomes kind of like a documentary so it's still the separate vignettes but weave together with quotes in between from each interviewee so if you can sit down and watch for 30 minutes as opposed to me being up there like play play so it kind of forced you to give structure to it yes and so what do you want people to get and i won't give away the details but what do you want people to take from it when i talk specifically to black people i want them to know that we have always seen value in ourselves and that we are valuable our culture there's nothing wrong with us and there are people who have fought on our behalf for us to just be us and to live and that that is worth fighting for that is worth dying for and there are people who have done it I want people in general to know that revolution, I think sometimes we can romanticize it. It's it's ugly. Yeah. It's bloody. It comes with a lot of sacrifices. People lose lives. People lose jobs. But it's always, every single person will say it's worth it. And as we wrap up, just give me a couple of highlights because I know you're going to have some well-known people from yeah. Philadelphia. Give me a couple of... Yeah. I have Mike Africa. He's the son of the Move 9. Yes. Um, no I, Mike. He's yeah. featured in it. Um, Mark Lamont Hill is featured in it as well. Jamira Burley, she's an incredible youth activist. She's featured in it as well. This year, especially because it's independent, I've been able to travel from New York and Philly. So featuring different people. Zeli Imani, he's a popular black activist. Um, a Black Lives Matter activist from New Jersey. He's featured in it as well. Be busy. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much to Sophia Ballin. Uh, this year's Black History Untold title, Revolution. Good luck. Thank you so much, Sherry. We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. And we'll walk you through the flames to quote Nigerian-born author Ola Joseph. Diversity is not about how we differ. It's about embracing another's uniqueness. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.